Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to another installment of The Gist of Freedom is Still Faith. I'm your host, Ilyasa Shabazz, and I'm dedicated to preserving the legacies of Malcolm X, Dr. Betty Shabazz, and countless others upon whose shoulders we all stand today. At The Gist of Freedom is Still Faith, we aim to empower our listeners with dignity and self-respect as we've taken an oath to empower at least one child. This show is co-produced by acclaimed educator and author, Ms. Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white. Here, we salute those committed to preserving a rich history through literature, the arts, the skill trades, and the humanities. So come on and gather your family, friends, and students to listen online at blackhistoryblog.com and on iTunes at blackhistoryuniversity.com. We thank you for joining us this evening, and we'd love for you to be a part of our discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. That's 347-324-5552. Hello, hello, hello. I'm delighted to welcome another special guest to our show this evening. Dr. Vincent Brown is a professor of African and African-American history at Harvard University. He teaches courses about the African diaspora and about the history of slavery, where he makes the study of the transatlantic slave trade accessible in a brand new way. He's created a brilliant interactive map of Jamaican slave uprisings in the 18th century called slave revolts in Jamaica. We like to call them enslaved Africans. And he focuses on the year of 1760 to 61, which he calls a cartographic narrative. And we're going to have to ask him, what is a cartographic narrative? Dr. Brown is also the author of The Reaper's Garden, Death and Power in the World of Atlantic Slavery. And he's producer of a documentary, a fantastic documentary about uh, anthropologist Melville Herskovitz. Dr. Brown teamed up with Axis Maps to enlighten public perceptions of black insurrection. We're reading where people debated whether the enslaved insurrection in Jamaica, West Indies of 1760 to 61 was a spontaneous eruption or was it a carefully planned affair, a carefully constructed insurrection. Dr. Vincent Brown, welcome to our 30-minute broadcast. Let's dig right in. We want to know who is Dr. Brown and why is history important? But first, if you will, please define for us cartographic. What is a cartographic narrative? Well, if you can hear me now, uh, first of all, it's a pleasure to be on your show. Uh, I always... I always love reaching out to people um, with history, especially black history, in part because I think it's something that we just don't learn enough about in our elementary schools and our high schools, and frankly, even in our colleges. Uh, black history is something that many of us have to discover on our own, as I did listening to music, frankly. I learned uh, many of my first lessons in African-American history listening to reggae music and then uh, listening to hip-hop. So that I've got study of the African diaspora. That's really interesting. Really Mm -hmm. cracked the book. I'm sorry. Did you say you learned a lot of your history through American hip-hop? 
I learned a lot of my history first through, through Jamaican reggae music. Okay. And then secondly, I began to learn uh, specifically some political takes on history from the, the, the hip-hop group Public Enemy. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Okay. So go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt you. We want to know who, doc, who is Dr. Brown and why is history important? And if you would define for us cartographic. Well, okay. So why is history important to me? I know a lot of people like to like to start with the old saying that um, those who don't remember the past are doomed to repeat it. And I actually take the opposite approach. I think the past never repeats itself. But we can look to the past to think about processes which are in some ways continuous. So we look to, say, the larger histories of, ex- of oppression and exploitation, particularly the black people stretching back several hundred years in the Americas, and we see patterns so that things don't surprise us. And for me, looking back at that long history, it gives me a deep perspective on the events of the day. So when I see, for example, um, the incarceration rates of black people, I situate that within a longer history of keeping black mm-hmm. people in their place, of being mm-hmm. afraid of black people, of making sure that black people don't rise to the very heights of society, of keeping an order in society that, that is, frankly, white supremacist. It is mm-hmm. not new, right? Mm-hmm. So for me, thinking about history helps explain, in some ways, uh, the genealogy of the present. Okay. That's fascinating, to prevent blacks from rising to the, uh, the height of society. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. So, even, even, though, even though we have a black president, we have incarceration mm-hmm. rates, um, particularly for black people, that are the highest in the industrialized world. Okay. Well, what is cartographic narrative? Well, cartography is simply map making. And what we have the ability to do now is not just make static maps, which show you the locations of things in space, but also to make thematic maps, which show you how different phenomena can play out uh, on the space of a map, but over time now, because the computing power is there, to allow us to animate these maps and animate the lines we draw on a map, we can show you how things move in space. And that Mm -hmm. allows us to really make narratives, right? Descriptions of change over time on maps. And when I say cartographic narrative, I just mean a map that moves over time, a map that develops, Mm. a map that tells a story. Okay. Okay. And how has technology affected your career as a historian? Well, as I said, you know, I got into history not just from cracking the books, but also uh, through musicians who were, who were speaking historical lessons, also through watching films, as I think many of us do. We, we learned many of our first uh, lessons about history from watching television and films. I remember when I was a kid and I watched Roots on TV with my family, and that might have been one of the first major sustained periods of engagement I had with the history of slavery. Now, that wasn't exactly the history historians were telling. I know it was a TV show, but that shaped the way I, the, the, the attitudes I brought to the history of slavery, even when I became a scholar. So knowing that, knowing that we learn a lot through these multimedia environments, I thought that I should really um, think harder about that and not just assume that the real history was in books and in articles and the fake history was in movies and on television and in music, but really think about how it is that people learn historical lessons through a variety of media. And I think that in order to do that, I had to engage those media. 
and in many ways even write in them or tell stories in them or make my analyses in those media in order mm-hmm. to really uh, reach the people that were already learning so much from uh, material that was not in print. Okay, so we see that your documentary uh, is focusing on um, uprisings. And we appreciate the value of learning about the history of the enslaved African in the Americas, and, uh, in particular, um, in, the West, in the West Indies, and how they resisted and revolted. Can you tell us why it's important to understand these African uprisings? Well, the first thing I think it's important to understand is a lot of people approach the history of slavery, and I think it's mostly a thing that's about the United States, that it's mostly a U.S. phenomenon. And while it's true that by the mid-19th century, the United States had the largest slave society in the history of the world, slavery was a worldwide, a global phenomenon, and slavery really defined the uh, colonization of the Americas. You couldn't have the colonization of the Americas without slavery. Uh, The Portuguese were the first involved in the exploration and exploitation of African labor, and the last out of Africa, incidentally. And Brazil was one of the longest-running slave societies Uh, in the history of the world. Likewise, you had large slave societies in Jamaica, in Cuba, in Saint-Domingue, which had the Haitian Revolution, as people know. So I always like to situate whatever history of slavery I'm telling in this larger uh, pan-Atlantic context. Now, one of the reasons I think it's very important to think about the history of slave revolt is because we often also think of slaves, right, as we say, enslaved peoples, enslaved Africans, as ciphers as merely extensions of the slaveholder's will. But when we confront the history of rebellions, we have to shift our perspective quite a bit. We have to understand, we at least have to ask questions about what it is these people knew that their masters didn't know. What it is they wanted that their masters didn't want. What it is they had the ability to do that their masters couldn't stop them from doing. And that, to me, is why we can say something like enslaved Africans rather than slaves. Because we understand that people had worlds, ideas, selves, beyond uh, their status as slaves. So slave revolt really forces us to confront that in, I think, a really dramatic way. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And it's still a little difficult for me to hear this word, the master. You know, for a long time we you know, went back and forth with how do we define this person who was captured is he just a slave or is he an enslaved African person here in America or in the West Indies or in South America, you know, wherever he, uh, he lay? Now, most of us are aware of the revolts of Den. I mean, we are aware of the revolts of Denmark Vesey, of Nat Turner here in the U.S., and of Jean-Jacques Dessalines and Toussaint Louverture in Haiti. Mm-hmm. Um, has your map revealed any new information about these historic defeats? Well, uh, it's very interesting you mentioned the Denmark Vesey revolt. You know, several years ago, uh, actually I guess about 10 or 12 years ago now, Michael Johnston, a scholar at Johns Hopkins, wrote a very compelling, very interesting, and, and very well-regarded article on the Denmark Vesey revolt in which he argued that historians had oversold this revolt, that, what we had, we, that they had really misread the evidence, and quite systematically. And they had read the evidence to say here was a conspiracy to revolt, Right, which was widespread and deep and aimed at perhaps even the overthrow of, uh, of slavery, when in actuality what you had was a panic, a conspiracy not on the part of the enslaved but on the part of the whites to suppress and destroy um, 
and, 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 and keep black people down. And I think it was an honest argument, which was that when we oversell the history of slave revolt, we ignore how awful slavery was, how repressive the system was, um, how eager the masters were to, uh, to deprive black people of any kind of agency and self-willed action. That's important as far as it goes. But I think that argument has been in some ways so influential that people are far more willing to see uh, slave activity as merely an expression of the panic of white people. Right? So we have this debate now, even with large-scale revolts like Tacky's Revolt, which was the largest slave revolt in the 18th century British Empire in 1760 to 61, where people are saying, well, you know, perhaps, younger scholars especially, influenced by Michael Johnson, are saying, well, perhaps what we have here is a series of opportunistic riots. There's not mm. a large conspiracy. These aren't Africans aiming at the overthrow of slavery in Jamaica. They may not even be aiming at the establishment of an independent maroon community um, uh, detached from, from the white, uh, the, the system of, uh, of, of slavery. Um, and it's just an opportunity that they see to, to rise up sporadically. And what I wanted to show with this map is, from my research, the fact that you can see quite careful planning. Only it's mm-hmm. harder to see if mm-hmm. you only look at textual sources produced by whites. Mm-hmm. When you map these, these same textual sources and you look at the locations they mention and you identify where the slaves were rising up, at what periods of time, right, in sequence, you can see some quite careful planning. Evidence of their planning, I think, emerges from the way the spatial dynamics play on the landscape. And that's why I think the map uh, makes an argument and tells a story that's been harder to see to this point. Wow. Okay. Well, let's share your website with our listeners, and, and, and perhaps you could explain how one would use this map and who would be the typical user? Sure. Well, the website is at revolt.accessmaps.com. That's where you can find the project description. And then if you, uh, if you click on View the Map, you can go directly to the map. I'll describe mm-hmm. a little bit about how the, the map was composed. And first of all, I should, um, should send a shout-out to Access Maps. It's fantastic <laughs> group of cutting-edge cartographers who I worked with to develop this. And, I had the research and the initial idea, but uh, much of the design and certainly all of the coding uh, was done by these cartographers at Access Maps, including David Hyman, Andy Woodruff, and Ben Sheasley, and they're just, they're just fantastic people to work with. But that, uh, that advertisement out of the way, I can tell you that what we wanted to do was really represent the primary source material. These sources produce contemporaneously with the revolt um, and show how the map really was drawn from the evidence that we have to discuss the revolt in the first place. So in the left-hand column, you'll see, running day by day, a little rundown of, of selection, a selection of sources that really source the movement that you're seeing on the main part of the map, but they also give you a sense of context. You can see how at least the white people were thinking of this revolt as it played out over time. Mm-hmm. And you can either play the map continuously as a single animation, or move step-by-step over about, uh, I think, 280 to 300 steps and follow these movements as they progressed on two different maps. One is an estate map, which shows you the location of most of the estates, the plantation estates on the island of Jamaica. And one is a terrain map that shows you the topography, at least the mountain ranges in Jamaica. And that gives you another sense, strategic sense, of how enslaved Africans moved across the landscape as they conducted their revolt but also how the counterinsurgency policed the revolt. 
Wow. You're listening online at blackhistoryblog.com and on iTunes at blackhistoryuniversity.com. I'm your host, Bill Yasser Shabazz, and we have the distinct honor and privilege of speaking with our special guest, Dr. Vincent Brown, Professor of African and African American History at Harvard University. And Dr. Brown is also the author of The Reaper's Garden, Death and Power in the World of Atlantic Slavery, and producer of a documentary about anthropologist Melville Herskovitz. What is uh, this uh, documentary? I, I'm, I'm, I'm not understanding. Can you tell us a little about it? Yeah, sure. Um, so many of your listeners will know that Melville Herskovitz was uh, one of the men primarily responsible for establishing the study of the cultural history of the African diaspora in American universities. Um, when he began his research in the late 1920s, late to late 1920s, most scholars at least assumed that the slave trade and slavery had absolutely denuded African Americans of any ancestral heritage they might have had. So they were so destructive that where you saw some cultural difference between black people and white people, that was simply a matter of black people's racial inability to fully assimilate white norms and values. They were just deficient in that way. What Herskovitz did is he began by, uh, by, by asking what the connection was, what the ancestral heritage might be from Africa among Americans as they were called the Negroes. And he raced back and forth between different parts of the Atlantic world several countries in West Africa, West Indies, South America. He, uh, he didn't conduct his own research in the southern United States, but paid attention to the research that was going on in the southern United States. And he shot hours of film footage, recorded hours of audio, shot hundreds of photographs in order to document formal cultural connections between Africans and African Americans. Because what he would do is he would say, ah, I've seen a dance in Dahomey. It looks a lot like a dance or even a method of walking or planting seeds in Haiti. He would juxtapose those two images and imagine a cultural history of connection between Dahomey and Haiti that people hadn't presumed before. And in some ways, his work is as responsible as anybody else's as really transforming the, the categorization of Negro people to African-American people because he, in some ways, gave an ethnographic guarantee to this African ancestral heritage. But that's not the end of the story. There were many people who were, who were arguing this way before Herskovitz began his research, most notably Carter G. Woodson and W.B. Du Bois. But as black scholars working in a white supremacist society, they really couldn't get traction for their ideas. People just, you know, the mainstream just didn't pay attention to them. When Herskovitz came along, at a point at which Jewish scholars were becoming white scholars, the opportunities where white people were opening up in many ways for the first time to, Jew for the first time to Jewish scholars, Herskovitz was able to establish this argument with uh, a broad base of research that uh, Du Bois and Woodson didn't have the resources to perform. He was able to establish this argument really at the heart of scholarly study in American universities. So he became the person most associated with this argument that African Americans, in fact, had a cultural heritage uh, from Africa that was that was to be documented. Now, the film explores this process where Herskovitz does this research, establishes himself at the center of this field, um, but then becomes kind of a controversial figure because he in many ways becomes the gatekeeper of African and African American studies in the mid-20th century. And I think of him as kind of like an Elvis figure where uh, you know, Elvis 
comes along as a rock and roller when black people have already been playing this music. He gets the credit for it. He becomes the king of rock and roll. But at the same time, it isn't in there because Elvis mainstreams rock and roll in a way that perhaps makes it possible for black musicians to come through, for black musicians to, um, to acquire mainstream status that wasn't available to them before. So what happens to Herskovitz in a similar regard is once he begins to make these arguments, black activists take up this argument for themselves. And we know that uh, Bobby Seale says that black Panther Party members were reading aloud from Herskovitz's Mrs. the Negro Past at Black Panther Party meetings, appropriating his work for their own purposes, carrying forward that argument that Herskovitz had attached his scientific authority to, had attached mainstream authority to, in their black power activism. And we wanted to tell that story as a process, how it is that a white man acquired the power to speak about and for Africans and African Americans, and then what black activists were able to do with that authority once Herskovitz had established uh, the merit of the argument. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, wow, that's really fascinating. Um, you know, I often share, you know, when I visit the continent, uh, you know, whether it's South Africa or Mali or wherever it might be, that you can see that it was these people who were lifted and placed in other parts of the world and they brought with them their identity, they brought their culture, you know, you still see the braids and the hair, you see all of these great um, uh, achievements that many enslaved and many freed uh, black people uh, made and, and brought to this country. And so I find it so fascinating in that we should understand that these were learned and industrious African people who were dispersed and that uh, because of the removal of so many millions of African people from their homeland that the, con- the continent uh, continues to suffer uh, even today. And so when we have all of these people going to rescue these African people, we should understand why the devastation is there, that it wasn't there because these people couldn't take care of themselves, but it was there because there were so many different people exploiting the continent. Now, you, you, you wrote a book, The Reaper's Garden, Death I just, and Power. I could have said that better myself. I think that was extremely well put. Thank you, sir. Um, your book, The Reaper's Garden, Death and Power in the World of Atlantic Slavery, can you tell us about it and where our listeners can find it? Sure. I mean, I think it's available on Amazon.com. It's a Harvard University Press published book. Um, it's, in paper. it's available in paperback now, and it's still in print. So I think mm-hmm. it should be available the people who look. But I wanted to start with a basic question. And as we were talking earlier about uh, thinking about the way that African and African-American people uh, exerted themselves were more than simply uh, the ciphers that their masters hoped that they would be, more than simply the empty vessels, uh, recipients of the master's will that uh, slaveholders thought they would be. Think about the absolute limit case, which is, we know that many of these societies were very high mortality societies. People died at an enormously high rate, especially in the sugar-producing societies that really uh, drew more slaves than any other kinds of, kinds of societies in, in the Americas, uh, more slaves directly from Africa. So what I wanted to think about was how it is that people express their sense of selves, their history, uh, their activity, even when they're dying very rapidly. 
what does it look like to think about a politics of death? What does it mean when people are going to funerals and that's their, their most widespread basis of social communion? How do they articulate their relationship to the dead, knowing that the dead are very important uh, in the way that people think about uh, uh, the continuity uh, between, of life and death, think about how it is that life will play out? How is it that they manifest these relationships? So I wanted to study this, um, knowing that really all we have is the demographic information. So I brought together a lot of our cultural history and our cultural historical understanding of what Africans brought with them to the Americas, even under conditions of slavery, and began to think about how it is that they memorialized the dead at funerals and what that meant, how it is that marking burial places allowed them to claim kin territory as their own territory, how it is that eulogies for the dead allowed them to articulate right principles for human living that were distinct from those of the slaveholders, uh, and really played out over about 100 years a politics of death in slavery that enslaved Africans and their descendants um, uh, used in some ways to resist, but in all ways to make a better life for themselves uh, in Jamaica from the 18th to the end of slavery in the early 19th century. Wow. Okay. Um well, recently in the news, there have been several reports of the unearthing of historical African-American settlements, towns, and cemeteries. We know about the African burial grounds in, in New York. Um, and, and recently I was reading about uh, in Timbuktu, New Jersey, where it was discovered that Mother Bethel Cemetery, one of America's oldest African-American cemeteries, is buried underneath a playground in Philadelphia, has your interactive map been used to assist with similar archaeology digs? And if not, can your map be used in these types of discoveries? Well, I think what I've done with this map is told a very specific story. But I think that the model that we've used to tell this story certainly could be used to tell other kinds of stories. To really take the data that we have uh, on the location of African-American people uh, and plot them on maps and, and set them in movement over time so that we can look at various phenomena as they play out in space and tell other stories, um, stories about movement that really illuminate other aspects of African-American life um, in colonial society and beyond. So this map in particular I don't think would, could be used for that project, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. I do think that there's a lot in cartography and narrative cartography in particular that could help us understand aspects of African-American life in new ways. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, well, in The Voice, there's an article written by Melissa Allison Forbes, um, and she wrote regarding your work, and I quote, slavery is a word rarely followed by stories of how black men and women defied the odds to fight for their freedom. Instead, focus usually dwells on accounts of the way in which its black victims were sold, captured, and beaten. Right. Stories of strength and courage are rarely told when talking about slavery. According to Dr. Vincent Brown, who has created a new interactive map in a bid to expel the myth that our slave ancestors were meek, docile, and content, she concluded by saying, a professor of history and African and African-American studies at Harvard, 
Dr. Brown narrates one of the most famous Jamaican rebellions, which started in 1760 and was led by a man known as Tacky. How is your work being received on the global scale, and do you have any plans to expand the map or use technology to delve into other African historical areas of obscurity? Well, I can tell you that the map is part of a, of a larger book project mm-hmm. in which I'm really trying to link up what was happening with American slave revolts with the political history of African state formation. Well, what you had is, is, is various wars in Africa where soldiers would often get enslaved in these wars, captured, sold to the Europeans, right, who were in some ways stimulating these wars so they could make product in their, in their view. Um, but then these soldiers would come out to the Americas, and some, you could say they, came, they regrouped, sometimes in new categories of belonging because they spoke similar languages or worshipped similar deities vis-a-vis other Africans. And then they staged these revolts against plantation society that had reverberations around the Atlantic world. And what I'm trying to do there is connect up African political history with American social history in new ways so that we can see that African history is very much a part of world history. Mm-hmm. And in this ways, I'm just trying to address uh, the question, or I should say the assertion, that the German philosopher G.W.F. Hegel raised at the, early, at the beginning of the 19th century when he said that Africa forms no historical part of the world. I yes. think that was a white supremacist lie, I think, mm-hmm. it, but it needs to be disproven through historical research. And so by connecting up African history with American history, I think we can show, again, uh, how important, how fundamental African actions were to the developing history of the Americas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's great. I think it's extremely important to show African, Africa's significant contribution to world history. Um, well, Dr. Vincent Brown, you know, this could go on and on. Uh, you're just great uh, with all of this uh, information, um, but we are coming to our end. Is there contact information that you have that we can share? Well, absolutely. Uh, one of the things that I'm doing now at Harvard University is I've just launched a history design studio, and uh, people can look out for the history design studio webpage, which will be online probably starting in February, but we've got a Twitter feed, uh, hashtag history design, and uh, my history department webpage at Harvard often carries updated information. So in all of those things, we're going to be updating people about what we're doing, thinking about new ways of designing history so that we can answer new questions, tell new stories, and reach a broader audience. Okay. So tell me your website. I want to know your Twitter I want to know your email address, if you will. Okay. So all of that can be gained from the map, I should say, which is, uh, and that's probably the fastest way to do it, which is uh, revolt.accessmaps.com. And there's a little biographical information page there. If you go to the map, you can find everything else. Okay. And your Twitter? Uh, the Twitter is just history design. Okay. Okay, it looks like we have a caller. Caller, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Preston Washington okay. calling from Kansas City. Yes, Preston. Uh, very Welcome. interesting. Oh, thank you. And uh, I'm curious, uh, during these revolts there in Jamaica and other places in the Caribbean, 
did the slavers receive any assistance from the United States government, or did those in revolt receive any aid or assistance from free blacks in the United mm-hmm. States? I'll Great take question. my answer off the air. Mm-hmm. Okay. Great okay. question. Uh, in the revolt that I'm talking about, no. Um, there was no United States government at this point, obviously, in 1760. Um, and so uh, there was no help to receive. By the Haitian Revolution in the 1790s, uh, it's worth noting the John Adams administration was quite friendly to uh, the black government in, in the new state of Haiti, or in the, in the state of Haiti in becoming. Um, this was before uh, Dessalines declared, uh, declared Haiti in, in, in 1804. Um, so there was some help forthcoming, at least trade, help forthcoming for the Haitian rebels, uh, but Thomas Jefferson cut that off when, when he became president in 1800. Um, in terms of free blacks, free blacks could go either way. There were some free blacks, right, um, who, who would aid the rebels in ways that were subterranean, that couldn't be found out, but there were other free blacks who thought that there was more in it for them to have a stable state in which they could uh, find ways of uh, getting favors from slaveholders than in aiding a rebellion that was certainly uh, doomed to failure in their eyes. So you found people split, but a lot of people, in fact, working for the plantocracy against the slave rebels because they worried about what a slave revolution might mean for them. And if they had been able to eke out any kind of favors, any kind of status uh, from the slaveholding society, sometimes they were jealous of protecting that. Okay, I just think it's so fascinating, and I think that, you know, sometimes when we just call them masters and slaves, it just it sounds like a very easy, cohabiting, you know, place, environment. And I think it's so important that, you know, that they are, that we understand the, the, the significance of words, you know, we, that we understand that these were human beings that were held captive against their will, you know, experiencing um, such trauma that was so unnatural to human survival and that they were not simply masters, you know, because masters sounds like something very nice and joyous and slaves sounds like... What you're saying is so important to remember that these categories are, are very are shorthand. They don't mm-hmm. really come close to mm-hmm. expressing the full depth of suffering, the full depth of experience mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Of, of what's going on in these, in these slaveholding societies. It's probably better to call them slaveholders than masters. But mm-hmm. even then, uh, slaveholding exaggerates, um, right. or I would say, uh, in some ways underplays how difficult it was to make a slave, to hold a slave. All mm-hmm. of the various rituals of violence and subjugation that went into slaveholding. Uh, all of those things had to play out over time, and any of these categories that we use are going to be insufficient. Yes, yes, and I think it's extremely important that we're able to talk about it, not be fearful, not be, you know, angry, but that we should, you know, absolutely talk about it. Um, Dr. Brown, do you have any parting words for our listeners? Well, I just want to say thank you, um, especially thank you the listeners for their interest in African-American history and in not being afraid of uh, engaging the history of slavery, which is a difficult subject, 
and thank you especially for putting this fantastic show on the air. I appreciate it. Oh, God bless you. Um, I'd like to uh, thank, thank all of our listeners. Um, thanks for listening to The Gist of Freedom is Still Faith. This is your sister, Ilyasa Shabazz, and please know that we are all here to honor and carry forth the works of our ancestors, celebrating the African-American experience and its global impact. And most importantly, we are here because we love our children and we want them to progress, and we love you. We really do. God bless.